welcome back to another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So, episode 57. Today's episode will feature Jonah Beer. Jonah is the longtime general manager of Frog's Leap Winery down in Napa Valley. And he has recently decided to leave after 18 years and move his skills and expertise over to join his wife and their venture, which is Pilkra Wine. His wife is the winemaker for that uh, wine, and they also have a wine merchant's uh, business called True North Wine Merchants. They have been very successful with their with their wines and their winery, and have decided to basically take his talents and, and go full-time with that venture. So uh, we talk about that, we talk about uh, tastings, we talk about a pile of things. Uh, what a great chat, great guy. Uh, I first heard of uh, of Jonah and saw saw him in with the Psalm family, as I call them, Jason Wise and his uh, and his band of misfits that he calls upon to uh, to have little um, little uh, you know episodes and stuff on his Psalm TV, you know, be it uh, be it wine tastings or be it uh, kind of uh, educational or uh, lots of different. Um, he's got lots of great uh, people that he uses to to assist in sharing this this great world of wine that we all enjoy and uh, Jonah is one of the people that he's he's uh, relied on to assist in with all his expertise in, in sharing all that knowledge and experience and uh, he's great friends with D. Lynn as well uh, who is another um, obviously another uh, great wine force in um, in Napa and, and down in California and, and you know US wines overall so anyway uh, we have a great chat Shout out to my friend Brett Thiessen, who is uh, the uh, vineyard manager for Mount Boucherie Wines in the Okanagan and Russ Wine. And he's probably listening in his truck right now, driving from one parcel to another in the South Okanagan, checking on all the uh, all the grapes and checking on all that root stock and all the all the doing all that hard work, getting everything ready to go so that the winemakers can uh, can make uh, beautiful wine. Hope everything is well. It's been quite the heat wave over the last few weeks in in our area, so it'd be interesting to see what um, what Brett's been up to with trying to manage to keep things under control. So, big uh, ups to you, my friend. So yeah, let's uh, let's get right into this episode with Jonah. The new thing with Zoom, apparently, you get the consent, I guess. I know, which is a which is a new thing, you know. Uh, before it was always done on the sly. You have to look for that little red dot in the upper left hand corner yeah. to know that you were being recorded. Do you know Abe Abe Schoner down that way? Of course, yeah, yeah. I uh, this is why the whole recording thing because uh, I was about twelve minutes in with Abe and I looked up and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'm sorry, and I've been trying to get him for like six months, and I was like, I'm sorry. Can we start again? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the good news is, is it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. So, you know, he's great a pretty guy. easygoing bloke. 
Yeah, great guy. We were chatting, of course, natural wines, and and uh, he's given me his his professor. Uh, he's given me his uh, his tutorial there um, on uh, on natural wines and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. How, how <laughs> he down your way. You. He and I worked. Sorry, with the with the Zoom connection, I I jumped on you there, but um, you were you were saying that you worked with Abe at one point. Yeah, we were together at Stag Sleep Wine Cellars uh, when I was working in sales, and he was uh, the St. John's College graduate uh, intern that came to work one harvest and then just wouldn't leave. Like literally, he was a philosophy professor that had shown up and just was in it to stay, you know, and I don't think he's, uh, other than going to LA, he's never gone back. So he might still have an apartment back in at St. John's College in Annapolis full of like old professorial wear and things, who knows? funny he's a he's great and that's and i mean that's the cool thing about wine is doesn't matter what your age right if you you get that wine bug and it just grabs you yeah that's true that's true yeah how long have you been in the professional end of the wine world i i think it was about five years ago that i really started to change from you know this is fun to have on you know a night with a nice dinner kind of thing to become someone that started to take a little more interest and in doing a road trip through France. Uh, that kind of, that didn't hurt. Uh, I guess it was about seven years, seven years ago. Yeah. With the last two years is kind of a write off, right? You think about something, you think about, Oh, I went to Scotland a couple of years ago. Oh wait, no, that's been three years now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Things, things aren't as they seem uh, chronologically anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. So going through, uh, going through Pomard and going through, uh, uh, and, and all that, all the great areas of Burgundy, that was a lot of fun. So that kind of woke up my, woke up my palate a little bit. That's one good way to do it. We were actually just, um, uh, earlier today, my wife and I were meeting with, uh, the guys that own Compline wine bar and restaurant here in Napa and tasting them on a, uh, Pomard, uh, from a guy named Thierry Villogiamar. And we were just kind of telling a story about like when we first met him, what it's like being in that little village. And he took us to the church, uh, the Cathedral of St. John, which is right in the middle of town. <clears throat> and the family's name is uh, chiseled into the cornerstone of the church building because their family goes back to the founding and building of that church. And there's something about, I mean, all the villages up and down the coat are great, but Pomar, for some reason, just has that kind of different, um, it, it, it feels like, you know, it's not, uh, too Tony. It's not Bone. It's not, uh, you know, uh, Pouligny or, or Chasson for that matter, or Merceau, where there's a little more panache. I kind of like Pomard's rusticity, kind of like the wines, I guess, a little bit rustic. It's nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. And, and, you know, you go to some of these, these chateaus and, and you go down to their wine cellar. They've been around for thousands of years, you know, underground and the whole bit, right? And that's when you're like, okay, I'm, this is some serious, this is, this is serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is not what it norm. This is not normal. Yeah, I, I actually sometimes I rec- we built a wine cellar down in uh, down in our, our garage. We converted a quarter of our garage into a wine cellar, and sometimes I record down there. It can hold a couple hundred bottles, but it's, it can be a bit echoey. Some of these caves and some of these um, these you know kick ass uh, cellars that they have that like ten thousand bottles and barrel upon barrel upon barrel, right? And, it's pretty cool. It's good stuff. And I think that there's, you know, visiting a wine country like Burgundy or uh, we'll be off to Barolo. Sarah and I, my wife, Sarah, we're heading to Piedmont on June 5th. 
and you know just getting back to you know Barolo and Barbaresco and kind of in Roero and kind of bouncing around seeing suppliers seeing vendors and it certainly uh, turbocharges the love of fine wine that can last uh, another couple of years until you get back to them again. So I, I always encourage anyone, no matter what you're doing, if you've gotten any bit of a taste for the world of fine wine, you know, and if it's start with Napa and Sonoma, cause it's easy and it's, well, for us, it's domestic, you know, or it's West coast. It's easy for Vancouver. I think it's great, but you just got to get out to one, one or two of these great wine regions of the world to kind of really see what it's all about. And then when you do, you kind of know. It's, you know, I've seen more lawyers and uh, accountants and finance people give up their, their careers because they visited one time to the Rhone and now they're just, they're bit forever. That's the thing about the new world versus old, old world, you know, as, as much as even for us up in the Okanagan where people want to buy local and, and shop local and et cetera, you know, there's just something about going to, you know, yeah, the middle of, of France, the middle of nowhere and some little commune somewhere and having a glass and, uh, it's just something about those experiences that, I mean, I recommend, I mean, we, we, we lived overseas for a while and we traveled extensively and um, just seeing some of those areas in Europe and stuff, right? It's just, you can't beat it. Yeah. You cannot beat it. That's the best. So I guess with the, with the visit um, um, to Piedmont and stuff, that's more for the wine merchant side that you guys, uh, that you and your wife are running. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, they'll be uh, to visit the producers that uh, the produttori that she already uh, imports and that we sell around California and a little bit in Arizona. Um, and so we'll visit those. And, you know, we haven't seen them, obviously. It's just, we missed last year's trip. So it's a good chance to check up on everything in the cellar, taste through the upcoming releases, and just, you know, break bread and spend time with each other. The Piemontese especially, more so than, than Burgundy, and definitely more so than Bordeaux, uh, the Piemontese, the, it's it, it's about eyeball to eyeball and, you know, eating uh, pasta together and drinking wine together just as much as it is about how big the purchase order is, you know, or how fast you pay. So a part of just re- retaining the relationships and building on them is being there. And then we'll also see, I think, four potential new uh, vendors, new wineries that we're going to meet with and, you know, taste the wines and kind of check each other out and, Hopefully we can come away with a couple more items. Um, obviously all around right now, all around the country, all around Canada, uh, Paris and Germany, Sweden, wine sales are up, up and up. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, a fierce competition for product and no one's had a real bumper crop in the last couple of years, you know? So it's, uh, it's, it's good to be going back over there and seeing everybody. And, and, you know, and then also, of course, it's kind of hard to argue with a business that, uh, that allows you to travel to Italy to eat food, drink wine, and yeah. spend a little time kind of uh, in, in the city of Florence. It's kind of, a, it's, it's a good way to call, it's a good business trip. No, for sure. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that's a good point that the, the crops have been down everywhere. So everyone's fighting for those, uh, for those same, the same grapes. So it's definitely, we, so I belong to a, a wine club that's, it's Canadian based. It's uh but the there's an MW who lives over in the UK that does all the all the tasting and all the kind of research and does basically her suggestions every year of what wines that will be kind of in the offering and um, so she she'll, she'll travel quite a bit and, and hit different different wineries and stuff and you're right it's it's it is uh, it has been a couple of bad years just generally speaking it's been a couple of bad years for for crops and uh, having those nice relationships for sure. 
will help. How, how's it been down in Napa for with uh, with Pilcro and and kind of that area? I think 2020. You know, up until the session, especially the glass fire, like you know, the first hint of smoke that we got here was coming from Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. where where the smoke was too old uh, to really cause damage to the grapes uh, because the the volatile phenols that are found in the smoke had all volatized. Uh, they are exactly that. They are volatile. So they are constantly degrading from the minute the wood burns. So the minute a tree burns and releases uh, guaiacol and 4-ethyl and all these things that are going to, uh, these seven smoke tank compounds that can float through the air and uh, and, and hurt the, the grapes and actually get brought in by the grapes through the osmotically through the cuticil, they can, they can create that smoke taint character, that ashtray kind of character, but they're volatile. So in other words, as soon as they're released through the burning of lignin, um, they start to degrade. And by 24 hours later, they're completely inert. They don't have the capacity to hurt grapes anymore or to be ingested by the leaf blade uh, through the stomata. So those first fires, uh, the first smoke that we had, you know, the stuff that was on Instagram that was the San Francisco skyline covered in orange and it looked very uh, here on the surface of Mars uh, sort of thing, that was traumatic to look at. We certainly knew what was causing it, but it wasn't cause for alarm for the, for the grapes and for mm. the wine. And so up until the glass fire, 2020 was an outstanding vintage. It was a vintage that a lot of us were looking forward to with a lot of glee, uh, having starting to pick Sauvignon Blanc in August of that year with frog sleep and then getting into uh, early picks of uh, Zinfandel and Cabernet, et cetera. It was feeling very optimistic and um, like, hey, we've got, this is going to be a stellar vintage. And obviously for the human toll and for the loss of property and for the loss of grapes that came along with the glass fire, it didn't end on the note that we wanted to. But of the 2020s that are made, that are sound and aren't smoke tainted, which is, you know, cost about a 30 to 40% production in the valley at large, uh, for our little pilcroak took a third of it. So there's 33% gone. But for what remains, it's outstanding. Uh, we were tasting out of barrel the other day and just like, golly, like, I don't know what to say other than, I mean, it's a shit ending to that vintage, but what we were able to pull out of it looked pretty great. Coming into this year now uh, with just record low number of rainfall, uh, the grapevines know it. They're very, very wise to the availability of water. And so they're putting out short shoots. They're flowering early. They're preparing to get, this is the year where they're going to make grapes that they want to get off the vine pretty quickly. And they're not going to make a lot of them. So, uh, cause they're just thinking about bedtime. They, they've got to preserve their energy for overwinter. So that sex versus survival instinct is kicking in this year. And we're going to see, in my estimation, we're going to see Cabernet especially kind of be another short crop uh, in another small year. So you kind of had 18 and 19, which had pretty good crops, uh, pretty good levels. Then 20 is going to be down dramatically. And it looks like 21 is going to be down, you know, not that far, but at least 20 to 25% kind of coming in. So hopefully we can make it through this year without a fire. We can get through without smoke taint and we can harvest these grapes and make wine and feel really good about it. Um, you know, it's, it's a long way to go between now and uh, the middle of October when my guess is everything will be in by then. So we just have a fingers crossed and, and, and are holding hopes, but it's a, uh, it's Napa Valley kind of joined, you know, the frost damages of Burgundy and, um, Piedmont uh, this year, uh, you know, and last year there was other frost issues. So we're all kind of, I know that in the old world, they have it a lot harder than we do. So I hate to even complain or compare ourselves to what they go through. 
and I learned a lot from my burgundy friends, uh, how to keep a stiff upper lip and not get too, you know, uh, dismayed. But um, it feels like, you know, the, the world's, the world is, has a bigger thirst for the fine wines of the world right now than it ever has. And we have a, less of it, notably less of it from some of the key regions. So it's going to be a pressure on price and a pressure on supply and all of the things that come with it. So it's a good time to be exploring and looking for new undiscovered areas too for fine wine. Uh, I actually have a good friend here in Napa that's moving up to the Okanagan to work at a winery up there. So oh, I think it's a, yeah. Um, I don't know if I can say his name yet because I don't think it's public, but he's okay. a very famous Napa Valley winemaker with a very famous family. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what he does up there, what he finds, you know, what's drawn him up there. I'm very curious and uh, thrilled to see that kind of. You know, it's like cool. when Tony Soder left Napa to go to Oregon years ago, you know, decades ago. Now uh, yeah. this is what's going on. So it's pretty cool. Well, I mean, and this comparable grapes. I mean, the Chardonnay's big in our in our have you been to the okanagan at all or no no never have okay uh, just to vancouver but never to the okanagan okay yeah it, uh, shards shards big up here you know there's a few grapes that don't work because because uh it is a bit of a cooler climate so so cabernet it can be good but it's it's not ideal sometimes you know so a lot of the hotter you know the hotter grapes let's call them but people try that's the beauty of having no laws you right like hey let's try this let's try that you know, Mouvedre, hey, okay, fine, yeah, boom, let's throw it in. Zinfandel, hey, whatever. You know, like, let's try it, right? Um, Geraldo, what are the ones that you're, you know, what are the ones you're excited about? Like, if I were to ask you, say, hey, of all those things that are being grown in the Okanagan, which ones are the ones you're like, hey, my, my early bet is on X? Early bet is on um, Merlot and Pinot would be my two. There's some really good regions for growing Pinot, and there's some areas down, right down by the border, it's it's the lowest part of BC. It's literally right on the border with the with the US. Their Merlot down there is, is really good. Nice and and um you know very ripe, very fruit forward, big like big kind That's of fantastic. big like almost like uh Australianish uh big. Um there's some yeah, big ones down there. Yeah, some fifteen fifteen. Merlot's making a comeback as far as sales go too, which is nice. It's yeah, it's I mean for me it's that it's one of the Bordeaux varietals that I like the most and, and if I'm going to, if I do a, like a Bordeaux blend or whatever, I always, I always like the ones that have got a heavy Merlot, Merlot kind of backbone, shall we say? A heavy dose of Merlot, I think, and especially in a Bordeaux blend, it's a great thing from the standpoint of it helps give you that kind of like power without weight kind of category, you know, that kind of feeling that you're getting, you're getting the kind of authority, the uprightedness, but without some of the drying factors of a Cab Franc or a Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a, you know, I was working at Frog Sleep and my wife was working at Duckhorn uh, when Sideways came out, you know, oh. and we watched Merlot sales uh, plummet by 70%, like, you know, the next year. Of course, Duckhorn is unstoppable and they've rebounded plus more. But Frog Sleep, we, we discovered that we were just never going to make that much Merlot again, that we would reduce the footprint uh, in, in what we were growing and where. And we would just kind of focus in on a more stylistic, more kind of pinpointed Merlot. And it's been great because it's back to being sold out now and it's back to being allocated, which is amazing. I can't believe in my career I was able to get back to the point where Merlot was on allocation. You know, after watching 
I couldn't do a wine dinner without everybody quoting uh, Miles yeah. back to me about yeah. Merlot, just nonstop. It was a bit, it was a bit uh, frustrating to say the least. And I mean, it pops in your head like you just say Merlot, and that that movie pops in your head. And, and as much as it was a, a, a ingest and everything else, it really did hit. It did hit the market and um, became such a such an influence. It's the same with Chardonnay, right? That whole, oh, absolutely. That whole, you know, the whole anything but Chard concept and that whole thing. And the funny thing was, is that kind of like Merlot getting kicked in the uh, in the in the teeth by the movie Sideways. It, we we often thought, if you go back and look at it, we were also as an industry making a lot of poorly made Merlot that was grown everywhere, grown everywhere. It shouldn't be made in a way that it didn't taste great. And so it was ripe for pun intended. It was ripe for getting the, the, the shit knocked out of it, you know, and it was by a clever line in a clever movie that really kind of took the world by a bit of a surprise. But if it had been strong and everybody else loved Merlot in the world for all the right reasons, it wouldn't have had the effect. And I feel like, you know, at Chardonnay's uh, peril for that brief moment, it was the same thing. It had become a caricature, you know, you couldn't make them buttery enough. You couldn't make them ripe enough. You couldn't make them uh, soft enough and vanilla enough. And so when along came people going, why are we worshiping this? The rest of the world, a lot of people went, yeah, that's a good question. Why are we doing this? And it had its little down moment, but you know, you look at now what came out of it is, uh, you know, the movie sideways probably saved Merlot from extinction here in the Napa Valley because everybody that was growing and making really bad Merlot is now making really bad Pinot Noir. And Chardonnay came out of it by giving us a much more diverse look at this amazing grape. Uh, undoubtedly to me, it's the most important white grape variety out there. And it's got the ability to do so many things. And it was that whole ABC movement that got winemakers and consumers to start looking for different avenues. And it helped us to get rid of the homogenization that we'd seen. So, you know, uh, economically speaking, if I was the head of Kendall Jackson's winemaking or uh, making 10,000 cases of Merlot, these were not great events. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, silver lining, I think we came out of it from a consumer standpoint, we came out of it with finer Merlots being made in Napa than ever before and more diverse Chardonnay being made around the, the especially the state than we'd ever seen before. So a little plus side to the shit shows that were ABC and well, and, that's, and that's that conversation that you that has to happen, right? Like like you said from the winemaking side and then from the from the consumer side, because if if that's all you've ever had is the kind of the creamy the creamy shard, then you can't you know you can't have you can't say, oh I don't like shard or oh I don't like Merlot. Right. You can't make those blanket statements. Randy Ullman uh, was the is the head for for Kendall Jackson Wines. We we had that conversation. Can't ha- you can't say that. You have to. It even goes back to what we we're talking about before, where you're talking about the price of the various prices and value for money, and trying to find. I always have this conversation with people where you know colleagues or whatever say, "I like blank. Can you find me a cheaper alternative?" Right? Or you know a similar grape variety, or somewhere else in the world that grows it for you know, cheaper. And so that's that conversation that has to happen, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. There's, you know, I think in all cases, uh, to me, the enemy of fine wine is homogenization, like in almost all cases, right? And so this is where Abe Schoner and I diverge a little bit, right? Where, where uh, to me, uh, one man's sans souf is another man's uh, micro ox. And 
uh, one man's skin con- extra skin contact white wine is another man's uh, you know mega purple. That like mm. on the opposite end of the world, they're at, the, the the practices themselves can lead to a homogenization. If they don't, then that's great. But it's what it's the over application of some of these things that ele- that leads everything to becoming a little more sameness. And there's just nothing more boring in the world of fine wine than sameness. You know, if um, if a you know if a Batsor Mont Rocher tastes just like a Russian River Chardonnay, well, what was the point? You know, where was yeah. where was this thing of terroir? Where was this thing of history and identity? And so, and and I think it can happen on the other side. You know, it's not just the it's not just the Philippe Melkas and the people that are out, or Michelle Rolands that are pushing this kind of like a, you know recipe winemaking. Sometimes it's the opposite. You know, at a at a, a, a natural wine fair where you're just going around going, wow. It, it just smells and tastes of Britannomyces or Decra or, uh, you know, premature oxidation or fully oxidized. And, and, you know, to say that it's character or variety or a better, more pure expression, though, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's homogenized. And for that, it, it becomes kind of, you know, to me, a little bit boring. Well, and that's also going back to the consumer. Like, why would the consumer then spend... $50 on a bottle of wine if it's going to taste the same as his mega purple blast. It's funny you said that because I chatted with Bianca Bosker who wrote about going to one of these winemaking conventions and um, you know, all the different additives and stuff that they were selling and that mega purple, the little looks the same and all tastes the same. Well then why am I spending, why am I spending outrageous amounts of money? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then what's the pursuit of the vintner then, you know, what's the pursuit of the wine grower? If, 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 if what makes it wine happens through a recipe, a wash, rinse, and repeat method, then, then what is the pursuit that we're supposed to be in, endeavoring towards? Uh, is it scouring you know, the world for the small hidden tucked away corners of the earth where something amazing happens when Vitus vinifera is grown in that spot? Or is it just pick me the place with the least amount of problems and the highest potential to get a grape off a vine and I'll fix it in post. You know, it's like when a director's like, oh, don't worry about that take. Don't worry about that shot. Don't yeah. worry about that terrible uh, acting. We'll fix it in post-production. Well, that's kind of what unfortunately can happen on both sides of the farthest ends of the spectrum on the farthest ends of the natural wine movement and on the farthest ends of the over manipulated wine style. It's just, fixing it in post it's doing something with a mechanization that homogenizes the variety in the terroir and we end up with a sameness right and and that's not what drives us that's not what gets me excited when i look at a wine list at a great restaurant right and you're and you see pages and pages and pages of things you've never seen before and if you've got a great sommelier there to then guide you this is like this is the most amazing thing to happen in the world uh, of a fine wine drinker is to have that moment of discovery but it's own, the payoff isn't when they found you something from another far away place in another grapevine that tastes just like the thing you can get at home in your grocery mm-hmm. store. It's when they find you something that's so different and so unique. It couldn't be anything other than uh, a Certico, you know, or whatever uh, far off variety and place you're, you're exploring. That's the drive of fine wine. Do you ever sit down at a restaurant and just FaceTime Dylan and, and be like, what do you think of this one? <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, is that there's, there's a friend of ours named Chip Stevens, uh, who runs a big distribution company in Virginia and another friend, Armin Kachaturi, and here in Napa works for Mortelay. 
and the four of us are often on text threads together. And as you can imagine, the uh, it's just mostly a lot of pictures of wine that someone's having somewhere. But occasionally, it'll be a picture of a sheet, a page on a wine list. And the question goes out, like, what should I get and why? And D-Lynn's good for always wanting to pick the single most expensive and outrageous thing on the list. He's not a value shopper, right? You don't want, D's not the guy you go to if you're trying to determine if you should go with a Saint-Auban or the DRC Montrachet, because he's got one, he's going to always vote one way. Uh, but he's, the guy knows more about some of these weird producers and some of the uh, offbeat producers that, you know, than anyone. And he's got a memory that's like a steel trap for it. So mm. he can be a bit, uh, he can be a bit intimidating in that regard, but having him in your back pocket as somebody can dial up and, and get that, that phone a friend advice on what to pick off of a list is pretty outstanding. Uh, uh, he's, he's obviously met my wife cause she, she has her, uh, has a knack to, uh, to picking the, um, the most expensive thing on the wine list too. So uh, when we were, when we were, uh, we always joke. There are peas in a pod. Yeah. When we were, we were filling up that wine cellar. Uh, we went to this wine, um, that same, that same, uh, uh, Pimian wine club. Uh, they were doing kind of like a pre, you know, pre-release where you can kind of taste some of the stuff that was coming and they had a few bottles available and, you know, she's like, Oh, well, we, we need to fill up the cellar, you know, grab six of those ones. Right. I'm like, oh, of course you're going to pick the one that's $80 a bottle. Of course you're going to, of course you're going to pick that one. <laughs> well, you know, the good news is, is, you know, you, you know how to always pick the right wine by her standard. Uh, it's just always go to the bottom of the page, far right. It's yeah, always yeah. where the most expensive wines located. That's too funny. Yeah. Her scotch, uh, her scotch tasting is about the same as well. <laughs> that can get really expensive. You yeah. know, when the Pappy Van Winkle starts to show up uh, in a bourbon tasting, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's over. <laughs> it's funny when you're talking about the Psalm, talking about Psalm ladies and talking about d uh, because you're kind of in that Psalm, Psalm TV family now with uh, Jason Wise and everybody. All that, all that band of, uh, of, of scoundrels down there. You know, it is a, uh, it's a world which, you know, I think that the restaurant world in and of itself is filled with uh, just a wonderful collection of misfits, you know, the, the, those that don't quite fit in neatly and conveniently to the rest of society that, that consider, you know, family meal to be something that's not shared at, uh, at uh, the holidays with your actual family, but it's shared every day, uh, you know, over, uh, you know, share plates and uh, past uh, food around a table with your coworkers. And, and the world of restaurants draws that in. And then you add on top of that to the kind of the insane amount of work that has to go into becoming a true sommelier at the best of your profession, where you have to get dedicated to wine at a level that most don't. And it just pulls out these amazing characters. And, you know, from my 23 years in the wine business, being on the supplier side, working at Stag Sleep Wine Cellars for five years, and then now 18 years at Frog Sleep, it's been my greatest pleasure to meet and get to know and become friends with so many of these amazing uh, characters who at the end of the day, we all share one simple thing. We're constantly amazed by wine. We're constantly thrilled by uh, the sound of a cork popping, by someone discovering something new and sharing it. And, and I think that the, the other one is, is that we're only really at home with a great bottle of wine if it's being shared. Uh, and so that kind of, uh, you know, what came out of the documentaries, uh, uh, Psalm and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 and kind of moving forward 
is that there's it's it's just become so much more popular now and people are seeing that it can be done uh at a young age whereas you know when i got in the wine business the sommeliers that ran the us's uh you know wine programs were older men uh you know in tuxedos with testivans and you know it was a different world and then along came this this vision of man you can study this and do it young and do it like a job and do it like a career and it can be a hell of a lot of fun and so kind of you know, finding myself having to offer to that group as far as, you know, hey, I, we can sit and host a Guild of Master Sommeliers, their some foundation uh, scholarship winners to, to Napa and spend a day in the vineyards talking about like plant biology and uh, uh, the, the mechanics of, of a plant going through bud break and flowering and fruit set to harvest and seed preservation and, and, and carotenoid development in the skin that can understand the influence on aromas and flavors later. That was what drew me into the crowd then where, they, where it was kind of like an opportunity to break bread with, with this group of young, amazing wine professionals. And then to discover that we almost all have the same exact slightly twisted sense of humor and uh, we just love to laugh and share. It's just been a hell of a lot of fun. And it's just been a great world to, to be a small part of. I, and I do like when um, you and your wife had the, the blind tasting as well. I thought that was of all the different, um, you know, parts of the, of the SOM TV, you know, the, the different uh, SOM TV shows that are available now uh, having you guys blind taste each other was pretty cool. And um, just an aside to that, I, I always, we always talk, you know, you, you talk about the grids and you talk about the tasting grids and stuff, but I do like how, when those people um, who don't necessarily need to describe something in a grid-like, you know, kind of format, um, how the descriptors kind of change. And I do like how you guys describe wines, you know, talking about it being very floral and very, the, the, the kind of the descriptors that are used as opposed to kind of having to follow that grid, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that also stems from, you know, the fact we've been married for 18 years, uh, that we're business together, and that we taste a lot of wines together for the purposes of, are we going to buy them and import them and sell them? Or in the case of Pilcrow, uh, you know, what are we tasting in this barrel? What are we tasting here that we like or didn't like? What could we do differently in the vineyard? So there's a certain shorthand to the way we taste wine together. Uh, but, you know, Sara's vocabulary and her ability to identify something and put the right word to it still befuddles me. Like, it's so precise. It's so good. And, you know, I'll find myself saying simple things like floral. And she'll be like, well, no, it's like purple flower and it's violet. And it, or I'll be like uh, floral. And she'll be like jasmine, and, you know, honeysuckle. So sometimes I, I find myself always batting second uh, in that way. And that's just fine. Uh, but she does have that kind of uh, amazing vocabulary and a precision to it. But neither of us really follow the kind of uh, grid format anymore. And I think it's because of laziness. And we're, we're just trying to, we, we, we've developed some shortcuts. And so we just run right towards them. Right or wrong, uh, we always end up kind of doing the same same sort of thing. Well, it's, it's funny because like Brian, I had Brian McClintock on a long time ago and we talk about, you know, going to, you know, flower markets and fruit markets and stuff and just talking about identifying, you're talking about, you know, Jasmine and stuff. And we're talking about um, if you need to smell it or you need to taste it or you need to know what, you know, know what these descriptors are to be able to use a descriptor 
it's a lot easier to, to, to say, oh, this smells like jasmine if you've smelt jasmine, or this smells like papaya because you've smelt papaya. And so we, yeah. we used to joke about going to a fruit market and just wandering around smelling stuff. And he, you know, he, he joked about, you know, get your, get your nose hairs out of my papaya. You know, <laughs> all you're doing is going around smelling somebody's fruit. <laughs> <laughs> But it's for research, I yeah, swear. I'm know, sorry. It's funny. It's he's not wrong. Yes, right. <laughs> I'll buy that papaya. I will buy that single papaya. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's so true, and I think that's what's so great about travel too. Uh, my wife is Swedish. Her mother is Swedish. They have a house up in the northern part of Sweden. I had, I'm sitting here right now with a glass of Spotswood Sauvignon Blanc, and for years I had described certain Sauvignon Blancs as having a little bit of a gooseberry quality. I'd never smelled or tasted a gooseberry. I was identifying it through someone else pointing it out in a wine and saying that's what it was. And then I get to Sweden with her and they have gooseberry jam and they have gooseberry this and that. And I thought, holy shit, this is really where it is. So that's what's so also amazing about traveling the world to, to anywhere, but certainly to any wine region or places where there's a farmer's market, because you're going to actually smell and taste some of the things that you're going to enhance your ability to describe a wine, but you got to get there and do it. And, uh, and sometimes I, I will still find myself using a descriptor. I'm like, I, I don't even know if that's accurate. Let's be honest. I've, I, I don't know what sweaty saddle leather really smells like, but in my mind, it's probably a little like this uh, Barolo. So, you know, I think that's <laughs> sometimes our imagination can catch us too. I find um, when I taste wines and every once in a while, my, my father-in-law and I will try and, uh, he'll, you know, we'll have wine at their, at their house and I'll say, well, don't tell me what it is. Don't, don't show me the bottle. You know, I want to try and figure it out, but it's, it's sometimes it's that memory association where you, you know, you're like, I know, I know this reminds me of something, or I know this, I may know this grape because I've tasted it before or reminds me of something. And also with the, with the descriptors, you know, leather or cigar box or whatever, it's almost like you're, you your brain has that memory in there somewhere, but that's not necessarily the greatest way to, to try and remember by memory because that, that doesn't always necessarily remind you of everything. And it's not very, it's not very clinical in that sense. Yeah, that's true. And that's sometimes just the, the frustrating bit is when you, you just can't put the word to it, right? Like you, you, you're stumbling and fumbling and scraping for it and, and uh, it's, it's never there. Fresh cut garden hose never comes to mind when you really need it, you know? I need that as a t-shirt so that I can just wear that around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the, I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of chatting with a lot of the guys in, in the, in the Psalm series and stuff. And uh, it never gets old to talk about kind of, you know, like uh, I had um, um, Sabato on as well. And just talking about those kind of early days and, and uh, the, that whole experience. And, and um, I haven't had the chance to talk to Ian uh, in Kabul yet, but, that's that's always kind of a classic thing, the fresh cut garden hose, and yeah, that's kind of those classic scenes in those movies. There are there are so many classic scenes, and as you can imagine, I'm sure all four of those guys, or all five of them, are tired of being uh, reminded of some of those things. But you know, the one thing that you just can't get past, and for me, I'm still always amazed by it, is you know, if if if, I'm, if it's something as simple as sitting over lunch with Ian and some of his uh, coworkers and we're drinking different wines, the, the ability to taste so precisely it's, it's uh it's like, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell thing of the 10,000 hours and you realize it's just the doing it and the work and the work and the work. 
But the one thing that can't be faked is that ability uh, to just to taste, smell, describe, put the vocabulary and be precise. As much as it's fun to give him a hard time about the garden hose or, you know, everyone's always trying to tell D Lynn to make wines colder, you know, or whatever, whatever mistake anybody did or anything funny they said in one of those movies comes back to haunt them a thousand times over. Uh, you can't get away from the fact that at the end of the day, I've watched too many times and been startled with amazement of watching those guys take a glass of wine. Some, jackass in a wine bar is trying to fool you on what it is and i watch them narrow it down and walk it straight to within one degree or spot on of what the heck it is and it's just it's still an amazing thing to watch it's still an amazing thing to see uh i was with dylan in barolo and i blind poured him on a new producer that we were gonna import back at the airbnb we were sharing and he not only described it, you know, he knew it was Barbaresco right away and he just kind of went through the basics, but he started to get down into like this idea that this, this producer was struggling with using a uh, large cask or barrique and, and that, the, that this wine, they were, they were right in the middle of it, but leaning a little towards barrique. And, you know, he went through this whole scenario and it was true. The winemaker, we sat with him, he's like, I did some of it in barrique and some of it in large cask and I'm still figuring out which way I'm going to go. And it was just like he could almost sense the torment uh, in the wine and, and then articulated it, which was just, it was infuriating. It was so outstanding. When you mentioned the, the 10,000 hours for, you know, having to, you know, kind of, like you said, immerse yourself in it. I always think of Rajpar when, when I always think about the amount, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of wines that he's tasted. And there's actually a, a clip of him and Brian, uh, Within the minute-long clip that that he has, he's given him a um, a, a Shannon, a South I believe is a South African Shannon, and he narrows it down to exactly, you know, within a minute he knows exactly what it is, which is incredible. It's just then the other side, the producer side too, Ian, like where. I mean, you know, for me in 23 years, there's a certain part of when Sarah and I are looking at a new vineyard for Pilcro, if we're, if we're anticipating that, hey, we might want to bring on a new uh, vineyard, it's, it's, it's great to, to know the elements of it. It's great to know about its bedrock depth and its soil orders and its type and its exposure and how old the vines are and what the rootstock is and what the clonal material is. And all those things are really interesting and they can help paint a picture. But, but walking the vineyard row uh, up and down six or seven rows it, without even really talking about it and just kind of watching and looking and seeing and feeling, it starts to paint this picture for us of, is this, is this a place where we're going to find the type of wine that we want to find? Is this going to give us the material to make a, a, an old school Napa cab, which is the goal of Pilcro to make a wine that's a, you know, a throwback to 1955. And, and it's so much of it is just, the hundreds of thousands of vines that I've walked by uh, and up and down how many rows and smelling it and seeing it and hearing uh, and uh, feeling the type of bugs that are in the vineyard. Uh, what are the birds doing? Is there a lot of chatter? Is there very little? You know, so much of it is uh, you almost can't uh, teach it. You just have to do it a lot. You just have to spend 23 years walking up and down vineyards and, and starting to try to experience it so that it, it hits you more reflexively. You know, and that's like watching Raj uh, zero in on a South African Chenin Blanc in a minute. You know, it's, 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 even if he tried to articulate, I'm sure, exactly what he smelled and tasted that gave him 
the clues, it just, it was a picture he started to see in his head. And, and it, and it's just, that's what, you know, that's the, the world in which we live in. It's, it's so much about craftsmanship. It's so much about the expertise of trial and error that you just start to feel it a little bit. And I, I, I am nowhere close enough to maybe Sara is, but I can, I'm nowhere close enough to being able to probably pick out a South African wine, let alone zero in on it being Chenin Blanc. But we stepped foot in a vineyard here in the Napa Valley and, you know, walked for about 10 minutes and just both instantly knew that we didn't need to know any more details. It was, it was absolutely the right vineyard that we wanted to be a part of. That it was a feeling that you had. And, and that vineyard's called Hillwalker. And now we're just thrilled with it. It's this little Mount Veter vineyard that is outstanding. It's, you, you just, you felt it instantly. And it's been nothing but rewarding to see that kind of come to fruition uh, over the last three in, uh, vintages. Yeah, that, that, that would be something special to find those, those particular vineyards that you want to use for, for, your, for the wine that you guys are making down there. Um, I, I do also know that you've had a few years under your belt with uh, Wix Frog's Leap. And, and talk to me about that. Talk to me about Stag's Leap and Frog's Leap and that kind of it's been a few years. It's been a few decades. Yeah, yeah it has. Um, you know, it was Stag's Leap Wine Cellars was that first wine. And I'm sure you've got it, Ian. We all, I mean, everybody that's been bitten by the wine bug can point to that kind of first bottle of that amazing thing that you had. And for me, it was Stag's Leap Wine Cellars SLV Cabernet when I was back in Indiana. And uh, I'd saved up, uh, you know, life savings to buy it and still didn't have enough money. So I had to pay part in cash and part on credit card. And, um, you know, it was 1992 Stag's Leap Wine Cellars SLV Cabernet. And, you know, popped the cork on it as I'm sitting with my college roommates in West Lafayette, Indiana. And, you know, they were, hey, can I have some? I was like, well, hell no, this was $50. There's, you're not going to get it. You're not even going to smell it. I don't want you to accidentally evaporate some of the wine out of my glass. So just stay away. Uh, I cooked a steak and a baked potato and I poured it in a really crappy wine glass, the only wine glass we had. And I remember just smelling it first and knowing that something was different and then took that first sip. And it was like instantaneous, like the world's been in black and white every other moment. Now it's in color. And so with that, I was determined to then work at Stag Sleep Wine Cellars someday. And so when I you know, dropped out of uh, college and drove out to uh, Napa Valley, you know, in my 1990 Chevy Beretta with terrible paint that was peeling off. I, I went to Stag City Wine Cellars and asked for a job. And when they turned me down for the third time, uh, I asked for a fourth time and finally got my way into washing the glasses in the tasting room. Uh, Crystal engineer is the title I gave myself, which I thought was much more impressive than glass washer. But I, I had a, a, a undeniable appetite for the job to where I got moved up to full-time glass washer, uh, doing tours and tastings for guests, to then going out into the Napa Valley to sell wine to restaurants, to then hosting sommeliers and buyers from around the country, then around the world, then traveling a bit around the world to sell Stag Sleep. And it was very uh, kind of meteoric and, and certainly not because of my skill set, but because um, Warren Winiarski was a tough guy to work for. So someone was quitting like all the time. And I just kept sliding up the ladder because I was there and I would always take on the next job without needing any additional pay. 
And so I was a bargain for Warren, which he loved. And, uh, but I found myself, you know, at one point I was sitting with Jancis Robinson in London, tasting wines, tasting Stagsley wine cellars wines. And it was just this bizarre moment of realizing that maybe I was an imposter. Maybe I was totally just outrageously over my skis and full of shit and had no reason being there. And, um, and the truth was, is probably half that feeling was right. And then the other half was realizing that most of us are full of shit most of the time. And so as long as you loved what you were doing and you were honest about it, it didn't matter if you didn't know some answer to some obscure thing. But people wanted to be around others that were passionate about fine wine. And that's what, that's what got me going. And that's what kind of pushed me to the, to the front edge of Stag Sleep Wine Cellars in, in a short period of time. And then when I met John Williams, the owner of Frog Sleep, on a trip through Canada for the Napa Valley Vintners Association, and we spent like four days and five nights hanging out in different cities across Canada, uh, doing trade, you know, doing like um, uh, tastings during the day, you know, where you stand behind your table and you pour the wine, to hanging out at night and having dinner together. And I just saw in this, this guy even more passion, more love of growing a grape in a certain way and tending to a vineyard in a certain way and then treating uh, employees in a certain way and creating an environment that was different. You know, frog sleep always embodied a bit more joy, a bit more uh, just let's enjoy the ride kind of mentality. Then stag sleep wine cellars, which at times was trying to, you know, wear an ascot or, you know, Chateau Montalena and Clos de Val, all these kind of uh, places that were trying to be French and stuffy and European. And then there was frog sleep that was making arguably some of the most age worthy wines the Napa Valley's ever known, some of the most interesting. Uh, farming and progressive farming, the first guys to, you know, among the first to farm organically and to embrace biodynamics. And of course, everything's dry farmed. I just saw that joy in this guy. And so I wrote him a letter and just said, hey, um, I would love to work for you someday. And, I, and here's five pages on why I think I could be a good part of the Frog Sleep team. And he left me a voicemail on my home answering machine saying, I think that's a great idea. Uh, maybe you could be the general manager here. Let's talk on Monday. And we met for coffee. And at the end of it, we hammered out that I would come over uh, and uh, start working for him. And that was 18 years ago. And it's just been a, a hell of a ride, you know, and to get to do the things that we do and to learn from him, but also to teach and to a certain degree to bring to him the world of the sommeliers, the world of... Uh, uh, of kind of that that echelon of tasting at the highest order and bring him students of fine wine that wanted to learn from it was something that he hadn't done before or frog sleep hadn't experienced before. And so that's been a, it's just been a great, uh, unbelievable ride and taught me both places, Stag Sleep Wine Cellars and of course, Frog Sleep. I mean, it taught me so much that Sara and I combined with her experiences and her knowledge to create our, you know, to finally, you know, step off a, uh, the deep end of the of the uh, diving board and splash into the deep end of the pool and start our own wine, uh, you know, with the 2014 vintage. A lot of that was because of the courage I learned from John, uh, the wisdom I learned from Warren, and kind of being a part of a, a central part of both those organizations over a you know, 23-year period. It's been the best kind of education, uh, experiential education you could ask for. 
You know, you go into it trying to hedge your bets, right? And so, uh, you know, Sarah had, had been vice president at Duckhorn running their California wholesale business for 13 years. And, you know, that was a big job. I mean, big job, huge job, you know, with 20 some people working with her. And so, I mean, just big, like, uh, but of being a winemaker was new. Um, vineyard with John and talk and his son, Rory, and we can talk about viticulture till the day is done. But for me, it was the first time where a vineyard uh, owner was looking at me saying, okay, well, what, what do you want me to do with pruning? What do you want me to do with, um, how, you know, how, how, uh, how many clusters do you want to leave on these particular vines? Show, prune, thin this vine the way you want it thinned, and then I'll have the, you know, we'll, we'll thin the rest the same way. And there's just something very scary about that. And so we both hedged our bets quite a bit. And we were fortunate that over that time, we'd become friendly and in some cases, very dear friends with so many great vineyard uh, managers and winemakers and wine growers around the world that we were able to tap into some people like Jean-Michel Combe at Chateau Ponte Canet uh, with someone we could talk to endlessly. And still to this day, his son works with us on one of the vineyards to talk about, you know, really let's investigate this idea of non-hedging. Like, well, we're not going to hedge the vines. We're going to bridge them by twisting the, the growing shoots together to, to defeat the apical, the, the, the need to grow over the vine so that it, it rests more into a fruit bearing uh, situation. Well, that's easy to talk about, but man, it's so great to be able to send pictures to one of the greatest wine growers in the history of the world, especially for Cabernet Sauvignon and be like, Jean-Michel, what, what do you see here? What do you, when we look at this together, what does your instincts tell you? And to have them freely wanting to give that advice because they, he had such tremendous respect for what Frog Sleep had done and what Sara was doing that he wanted to help. Uh, and the same with like Marco de Giulio, like one of the greatest winemakers to make mountain cabernets in for decades here in the Valley would volunteer his time to come and stand around the barrels and taste with us. And sometimes he'd bring other winemakers with him and, I mean, we would have a million dollars worth of consultants standing around, you know, five barrels of Cabernet, all donating their time. And we were just getting this extraordinary uh, feedback, you know, and, and then we would take that feedback and put it into the, into the milieu of what we were trying to accomplish. And we would come up with a plan uh, for, well, should we rack it or shouldn't we? Like, what should we hit? It? Should we add some sulfur right now or should we wait? What should we do with our barrel selection? What coopers should we select? Like all those things we were certainly wandering, we were certainly taking the plunge on our own and financing the whole damn thing on credit cards. So there's a ton of risk involved in that. But we had so many great mentors and teachers that, that stood up and said, hey, you can count on me and, and I'll help you out if you've got a tough decision to make or even an easy decision to make. And so that, that was so utterly rewarding and impossible to imagine that to this day, we feel overly blessed and overly fortunate to have you know, so many great uh, people in our lives that will just step up and, and willing to take a look at something with us when we need them to. I was just say congratulations on, on making it and, you know, taking that plunge because it's, it's such a hard thing to do, but obviously, you know, you've, you've had some, some success and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that uh, if I ever, the borders ever, you know, decide to reopen down <laughs> one of these days, we'll make our way down to Napa and, and taste some of your, taste some of your wine. Yeah, I'd love it. I'd love to share with you some of what we're doing and especially to get to some of the vineyards like like the uh, Ghost Block Vineyard that we get the chance to work with, which is, you know, it's the it's carved into the side of the Yonville Hills, which kind of sit on the north edge of the town of Yonville, which was the whole hilltop was once 
it sits at, you know, 90 feet elevation, but it used to be a mountaintop at 2,300 feet elevation that fell down in this very unbelievably cataclysmic uh, earthquake event, you know, seven, 10 million years ago. And it fell into the center of the valley and it turned on its side. So instead of having horizontal layers of different epochs of soils and terroirs, each one runs up and down vertically like stripes. And, and the vineyard runs across those. And so every vine you walk, you traverse about 25,000 years of geological history. It's, it's the most impossible to imagine mountaintop vineyard that sits in the middle of the valley on its side. And someone, well, the Hoxie family happened to put grapevines on it, you know, 103 years ago. And you just think to yourself, like, how many goddamn things had to go right for us to have these four rows of this impossible vineyard that we get to make this tiny bit of wine from? And this to is- see it and to walk it and experience it, it's... It feels surreal at times. Yeah. And, and certainly, Sarah and I feel oftentimes like, how the, how the hell did we get here? Like, how are we the ones that get to experience this? It's so much good fortune and good luck. I'd love to share that with you and show it to you. Well, that's, that's just amazing. I mean, um, that's, uh, that's, that sounds like an incredible experience to be able to, uh, to do day after day. I guess, is this, um, is this I guess people, people could see the writing on the wall with you, um, with you leaving Frog Sleep, or is that... Uh, kind of a shock for people? Yeah, you know, it, it certainly, I mean, the writing was clearly on the wall, but at the same time, um, I think it was, you know, a, a little bit of a shock from the standpoint of, you know, like, hey, we've done so much and it's gone so well, you know, like, why would we want to break up the band, you know? And and that's what was running through my mind uh, forever, you know? And uh, obviously, you know, I gave uh, John and Frog Sleep, uh, you know, ample four months I'll still be there and another year after that that I'll be available for anything you need and so you know we're not abandoning each other that's for sure but you know I think his first reaction was the right one which was he got a little bit emotional and was a little bit shocked and then the first words out of his mouth were I'm so happy for you and Sarah I just think it's the right thing you've had this dream for a long time it's working you guys are ready to do it get out there and do it. And he's been nothing but encouraging. And I know that 10 years from now, I can call him up and be like, hey, I got a question for, you. I need some help with X, Y, and Z. And he'll be the first one to answer the call because you know you don't spend 18 years working on something together that's, that really does kind of come together and then begrudging each other, right? I think that's what's so amazing about this business is that especially in the Napa Valley. And you know, you know, I, I know that there's so many people out there that look at the Napa Valley and they think it's only... Opus and, and, and Scarecrow and, and Harlan and these very expensive, very kind of very exclusive things. But the Napa Valley is broken up into hundreds of wineries and vintners and even more grape growers. And what really exists here more than anything is a palpable sense of helping each other out, a community and help all along the way. And I think that that's what's, what's wonderful about, you know, working for John these last 18 years is I know that if I ever need to, I can be like, hey, man, I got a question. Or can I borrow the flatbed truck to move some grape bins around? That the answer is going to be, of course. And let's get lunch when you're done because we got a lot to catch up on. And that's, that's a, it's a wonderful thing that you don't always see in other parts of the world, especially highly fragmented, highly competitive places like the Napa Valley that exist in other spots in the world. Maybe that sense of esprit de corps isn't quite as palpable, but here it really is. And... Um, been nothing but a great outpouring from people that have, you know, just as words gone out in the last couple of weeks that I've, I've turned in my notice at Frog Sleep and I'll be 
hanging up my spurs there on September 10 and then joining Sara full-time in the pursuits of Poe and True North Wine Merchants. It's been a great outpouring of support and encouragement from internally and customers alike. So we're, we're thrilled. We're a little bit nervous, but we're thrilled and, and looking forward to it. Well, and I think this probably just also speaks to the type of people that, that you guys are with building those relationships and building that rapport. And even some of the people I've chatted with down like Lodi and, and that kind of, that collective and that kind of, those relationships that they have built. And obviously it's the same with Napa that you you build those relationships because at the end of the day, you are there. It's the same with the Okanagan. They're, they're, there's, they have these winemaker dinners where all the winemakers will get together and, and share share trade secrets with each other and share tips and tricks and they'll because they want they want each other to succeed but i mean to me that's that's the uh, the the most sincere element is is when you want your fellow wine growers to succeed right and that's what you're talking about with the okanagan and the the winemakers getting together to share is because they all know that there's enough pie out there and it's going to get sliced up no matter what. So let's, let's help each other be the best we can be so that we all improve. You know, it's the old, the old axiom of Mr. Mandavi's that uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's easy to, to paint that into like a, on the side of a, a sign that says, welcome to the Napa Valley. But it's a different thing altogether to practice it, you know, and to really, really lend a hand when someone else needs it is uh, what we saw in spades in 2020 here in Napa when the fires were, uh, you know, ravishing not just uh, vineyards, but obviously people's homes and businesses and wineries themselves. And every week, the Napa Valley Vintners Association had Zoom calls with uh, experts from around the world giving us all tips. And then people were typing into the chat bar hey, I discovered if you do this, it's helpful. Or I discovered if you do that, it's not helpful. So, I mean, everyone was just throwing out all the information they had. There was no secrets being kept. Nobody wanted to be the one guy who knew how to ameliorate smoke taint and didn't want to share it. It was quite the opposite. It was a flood of sharing and help and camaraderie. And and this came without uh, anyone batting an eye. There was no, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't tell Bill how to fix that, you know, or maybe I shouldn't tell Bill to keep uh, his grape, his uh, wine off the skins, you know. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's what, to me, that's what separates the great winemaking regions from the world from the ones that are just in it for a commercial venture, right? And I think that that's, when you see them burning, uh, the straw in Burgundy to make sure that the sun rising on one of those clear mornings doesn't, you know, give that kind of sunburn to the buds that everybody's out doing it together. And it's not just, well, I'm going to try to take care of my plot and you can forget you over there. It's a, it's a community coming together. And it's, it's one, one reason I, I have eternal faith that, that the wine growing regions of the world will, will forge on even in, even in spite of the scary elements of climate change and even in spite of the scary elements of uh, geopolitics. Because I think that at the end of the day, we all know that this is a brutal business. It's hard to do. It's filled with potholes, but the rewards are so great and the rewards are so many that they can be shared. They can be shared with a, with a thirsty world. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing for us to remember as we plot around the vineyards or, or fly around the world to share our wares is that what we're doing is meant to bring people together and to bring joy. That's great, Jonah. I think I'll leave it. I think I'll leave it there for, uh, for this one. Really do appreciate chatting. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, letting me be a part of what you're doing and um, keep it up, man. Uh, it's just, it's great to see 
uh, what's going on in the world of fine wine. And, and, you know, obviously Vancouver is such a great city for food and wine. Uh, and it's great to see people pushing the, uh, yeah, pushing education, information, and sharing like you're doing. So keep it up, and thanks for inviting me on. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me.